certainly over the past 10 years, there has been a challenge to the presumed rationality of a system that was something analogous to what Thomas Kuhn would call in the history of science, normal science. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I usually try to say something new and original in my little interish spiel. I want to help think through what's going on in the world and help orient you about how I see the world. Today, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say something which I'm sure you've all thought and all agreed with, but it's important nonetheless. And that's just the deep way in which social media encourages some of our worst instincts. And I think sometimes you see that when people actually have justified anger, when you can understand why they are denouncing something, why they are calling out something. But even then, the nature of that sentiment doesn't seem to be in keeping with the goals it purports to serve. When people make mistakes, genuine mistakes, bad judgment calls, for example, or when they simply disagree with their tribe, when people on the right criticize Donald Trump, or increasingly when people on the left criticize positions and candidates of the left, the reaction is not one of sadness that they got this one wrong. It is not a hope that the person might change their mind. It is a deep pleasure in denouncing them and putting our knives into them and discarding them and saying they are no longer somebody to be tolerated in good standing among us good and virtuous people. And I'm exhausted by it. I think we all are. And we really need to think about how we can use social media for the tremendous positive potential they have, how we can stand up for our values and not be afraid of our own righteousness. I think being guided by the ideals of liberal democracy in this dangerous moment is an important thing and yet have some amount of compassion for our political adversaries and some of, amount of humility about ways in which we ourselves may be mistaken on some issues. Well, that reflection logically leads me into introducing my next guest. Justin E.H. Smith is a professor in the Department of the History and Philosophy of Sciences at Sorbonne in Paris. He is an American who is incredibly erudite, has written on a vast number of subjects, and in my mind is perhaps the most interesting essayist at work today. Justin has also thought quite deeply about the history of rationality, our convictions that we are more rational than others, and how we can try and be more self-critical about that without starting to embrace relativism or irrationalism. We had a really wide-ranging conversation about the relationship between truth and politics and the age of Trump. I hope you enjoyed them. I'm, I'm pretty much sure you will. Justin, I'm so excited that you're on the podcast today. I've been following, admiring your work for a very long time. But you're also going to help me with something more specific today, I think, which sure. is that one of the things that's just hard to get your head around is the sheer 
irrationality of our political moment. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like nothing is quite working as it should, and nobody quite is acting as you would expect them to. And I know that you have a big book on irrationality coming out. That's right. It's called Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason, appearing my publishers tell me in January uh, 2019. So we're the first people to get a cut of that. But help me think through this problem. So one way of getting at this is to ask whether Donald Trump is as irrational as he appears and whether it, it does in fact make sense to think of some of the anger in our politics, which obviously often takes the form of a certain form of populism. Does it make sense to think of that as rooted in some ways in irrationality or is that in fact far too simple? That's what nice intellectual elites like ourselves like to tell ourselves, and it's just a way of sort of making ourselves feel good. I think it is simplistic to suppose that any individual actor on the political scene is irrational, and to stop there, certainly. But we have to look at different levels of irrationality. One is, say, an individual person's inability to correctly deduce a conclusion from premises. That would be a kind of narrow, logical sense of irrationality. But then there's a more interesting level and a level that's more relevant to politics, which is the behavior of masses of people, movements that are incited by things that individual actors like Donald Trump say, but that need to be considered independently of that as well. Right? And so what would that mean? I mean, there's sort of two obvious things that come to mind. I don't know if you have either of those in mind or something completely different. So one is the old sort of late Marxist thesis, right? Mm -hmm. So Marxists predicted that the working class obviously had an interest in overthrowing capitalism mm -hmm. and the bourgeoisie. The longer they didn't seem to be doing that in a big number of countries, the more they had to find explanations for that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this idea of trying to explain the irrationality in the sense that mm -hmm. why it was that they weren't acting in accordance with their objective interests mm -hmm. became mm -hmm. a central part of that sort of Marxist tradition, right? Sure. Another way, I guess, of thinking about irrationality is through personality cult. Sure. That you get so enamored of a particular figure, you're mm -hmm. so invested in the idea that this person is going to be your savior, that you're willing to go along with anything, that sure. you're willing to disregard evidence of them having a particular nature or acting in particular ways when it goes counter to the narrative and so on. One thing that I got more interested in than I had expected to when I started working on this book is elements of the anthropology of religion, where it's almost a commonplace that new religious movements work in their early periods of effervescence not in spite of the contradictions of the hmm. core dogma, but because of them, hmm. right? So it becomes a shibboleth of membership to be able to affirm things that, strictly speaking, don't make any sense. So what's an example uh, of that? Well, an, an example of that is, I don't want to denounce any particular religions, but maybe an example, an example that comes up is the Trinity. Right. Uh, three persons in one. What does that mean? Nobody knows. And the fact that nobody knows makes it all the more powerful, makes it an enduring social movement because you can meditate upon this evident contradiction for thousands of years. I can also think of certain academic disciplines which may or may right. not follow that. But, right. but in politics, what he's saying is, you know, the ability to say, no, mm. Donald Trump is an upstanding man mm. and he has our interest at heart, even as we have legal evidence of him having paid off porn stars. Mm. 
class. Mm. Would that be an example of that? Well, I think when political movement like Maoism or perhaps Trumpism reaches the point where you have people defending it, not in spite of, but because of those features of it that make it so rebarbative to outsiders, to other people who can't accept it, I think you have a phenomenon that is interestingly analogous to religious movements. And that is I think, a cult of personality, and that's what we have in the case of Trump, certainly. But maybe we could get back to the earlier uh, observation about late Marxism and contradictions, because certainly there's another sense of irrationality. I mean, there are so many senses of, of, <laughs> of irrationality. I, that's why it's a book. I tabulate, I think, a dozen or so of the primary ones. But certainly there's a sense of irrationality that in the Marxist tradition is analyzed in terms of false consciousness, in other somewhat proximate ways in decision theory and in people like Jan Elster is talked mm. about in terms of sour grapes. So the idea of sour grapes, as I remembered from Elster's work, is that there's a fable, right? It's an yeah. animal that, that wants to eat grapes. Yeah. And since its neck is too short, it says, well, I, I don't want those grapes anyway. Because right. Because they're sour. And I guess this is just a normal Right, right, right. A, but he then, yeah. It's a La Fontaine fable. And it's, uh, I, to my mind, there's nothing irrational about that. I think that's something pretty close to stoicism, right? You just, huh. you just learn to prefer what you've got because it's a more kind of convenient path in life than to seek to have what you don't have, right? But these are similar in that there are various ways of, let's say, deluding yourself about the nature of your present situation. And I think that is something that I'm less interested in than, let's say, assertions of will, particularly assertions of will in political movements. Like, for example, going back to the Tea Party, there's some extended mm. discussion of that in the book, where you convince yourself of things that, strictly speaking, you can't believe. And the fact that you can't really believe them deep down is not a problem for the movement, but in fact, what makes the movement work, what gives it its, its wing. So bringing it back to, to the current political situation, what does the history of rationality and rationality tell us about either the nature of populism, its prospects for long-term success, or even how to confront it? Mm -hmm. And I know that one obvious response to a mass outbreak of irrationality is to try and create a politics of pure rationality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and you're quite skeptical of that. Yeah, and that's kind of the easily summarized thesis of the book, if you will, is that efforts to impose rational order in any thoroughgoing way are bound to backfire. I start with the allegory, probably almost certainly apocryphal, of the Pythagorean mathematician Hippasus of Metapontum, who was one of the only uh, members of the Pythagorean cult, and this was a cult, to... to tell have, us something about the Pythagorean uh, cult. Well, they made some great discoveries in mathematics, but they were also, at the same time, completely devoted to the mysteries emitted from the mouth of their leader that were not at all mathematical proofs, but were somewhat mysterious, enigmatic, cryptic, hmm. infinitely interpretable 
sayings. And to be a member of this movement, you had to give up your possessions and you had to wear、uh, the same toga as everyone else and live with them and follow all sorts of cultic rules. So one of their great discoveries was of irrational numbers, and this is obviously a special sense of irrationality, but it shares some things in common with the other senses that that are of interest to me. The fact that there are non-terminating decimal series that just go on and on forever, and that these are in fact, so to speak, instantiated in very common geometrical objects like the diagonal of a square, the square root of two. So, so the idea、um, is you have a square. Each side of the square obviously is of the same length. Let's say it's、right. five centimeters. But the diagonal is going to be seven point three nine two, etc., etc., etc. And you can never, never you can never finish. And for people、it. who wanted to impose a rational order on the world and forward mathematics,、right. was the key to that. This、right. was displeasing. Exactly, it was horrifying because it meant that mathematics is not the great. Answer to all of the apparent confusion and uncertainty of human life.、Mm. That the confusion and uncertainty is built into the world itself. So, When, what does that have to do with Hippotamus? Is that his name? Hippasus. Hippasus.、Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, they discover this. It freaks them out, and they swear themselves to secrecy. Hippasus just can't. Keep a good secret to himself, so he divulges it to outsiders, to non-members of the cult, and then word gets back to the other members. So they invite him out on a little fishing trip in a boat, and when they're out at sea, his fellow cult members push him overboard and drown. So he passes, as they would say in the 20th century, sleeping with the fishes. Right, he's sleeping with the fishes, exactly. And it's a hilarious story. It almost certainly never happened. There are different variants of the story in late antiquity.、Mm. Some authors say. That it's the gods who got their revenge on him, and so you know we don't need to go into the. So why are you telling us about this piece of fake news then? Okay, so I take this as a very useful parable for basically everything that's happened since in the history of human efforts to set up rationality as the supreme. Organizing principle of human society, in the sense that the Pythagoreans were so devoted to rationality that when this was compromised by one of their own, the result was explosive violence. And this is, in a sense, the pattern for. Every phase of terror that follows、mm. a revolution, or every time efforts to have a kind of top-down imposition of rationality get out of control, slip beyond the scope of what human beings are really capable of controlling. So、um, we're recording this in a small little hotel room in Paris to give listeners a, a little peek behind the white curtains here. So I can't help asking.、Mm. Sort of the French Revolution, obviously, is the founding event of modern democracy. Politics in a certain kind of way, for the American Revolution has a bit of a claim as well, which is、mm-hmm. like sometimes、uh, understated in France.、Mm-hmm. And in fact,、uh, at the height of the revolution, they had temples to、mm-hmm. to reason, which is a little bit of a of, of a contradictory idea to、yeah. point out. So, how did that attempt to impose reason play out in revolutionary moments like、mm-hmm. like the French Revolution? I think yeah, that's a wonderful moment to focus on, and much kind of. 
more accessible to us than whatever the ancient Pythagoreans were or were not up to. My office at my university here in Paris is in a building named for Olympe de Gouges, whom I've grown to admire a great deal over the past few years. She was revolutionary at the beginning and feminist of the late 18th century, who wrote what might have been a satirical response to the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen called the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Women mm. and the Female Citizen, La Citoyenne, and the Jacobins cut off her head for this effrontery that, again, has an air of satire to it, but is a perfectly reasonable kind of challenge to the claims of universality of the original document. Mm. And it's a perfectly, well, I've already said it, reasonable, rational inference that if you really mean that this document has universal scope, then let's see what happens when you plug in women for men. Right? Right, right. So it's such a simple maneuver, such a kind of mm -hmm. pure use of logic for a rhetorical end, of course. And the fact that this is received as a compromise to the revolutionary aims, I think, is, again, another allegory or another really vivid allegory, the one based in more in historical truth of how these things work. She was one of many people who were lost with subsequent regrets in the reign of terror, but her case I think is particularly vivid. So I understand the danger of sort of utopian attempts to impose order and reason during mm -hmm. revolutionary moments, mm -hmm. right? I mean, as we've mentioned so far, well, the Pythagoreans, we've mentioned Maoism, we've mentioned the French Revolution. These are all, well, the latter two are well-known examples mm -hmm. of sort of mass attempts to impose order and justice mm -hmm. on the world mm -hmm. that end in terror. Um, uh, I, I guess I'm trying to think for what the right lesson to draw from that is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I have two questions, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, one is, do you think that we've lived a version of that in the last decades? Do mm -hmm. you think that one of the sources of the evident anger against the political system at mm -hmm. the moment comes from, say, something like the European Union, which tries to be very rational, be quite technocratic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, obviously, also as a weird creature of all mm -hmm. kinds of Baroque political compromises, right. so it's hardly an edifice of pure reason. But do you think that plays any role in that, or do you think that's taking it too far and actually mm -hmm. the, the, the failings of establishment politics, which certainly did mm -hmm. exist, are of a more prosaic nature, say, self-dealing and corruption and so on. That's interesting. Yeah. Certainly over the past 10 years, with the enormous threats to establishment politics that have arisen, there has been a challenge to the presumed rationality of a system that was something analogous to what Thomas Kuhn would call in the history of science, normal science. We had normal politics that was assumed to be rational, but that was in fact just lazy, and in its laziness often degenerated into, as you mentioned, self-dealing and corruption in some regions more than elsewhere. Right, right. And this was being challenged, obviously. This is challenged in Europe with the threats to the European Union and certainly the challenge to business as usual establishment Democrats in the, in the 2016 election in the United States. But I think that needs to be sharply distinguished from, let's 
say, particular moments in history that are of more interest to me, at least in the book, in which there is a sudden lurch of top-down planning that presumes to be able mm. to manage everything. And that's the kind of assertion of rationality rather than what we see in older establishment politics that are now under threat, where you might say it's not an assertion of rationality, but an assumption of rationality. That's interesting because that makes me a little unsure of what the political lesson of your main thesis mm -hmm, is. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. it, you know, I'm certainly ready to get on board with trying to make the whole world rational in one fell swoop and creating, uh, you know, alters to reason and so on is going to end poorly. And we've seen that <laughs> over and over again in history. It doesn't take much historical knowledge to be aware of that. But if we see right now a political movement, which we perceive as being in various ways irrational and quite dangerous, <laughs> what's the answer to it? <laughs> and is the answer... So, sure, the answer is not, let's have a counter-utopia Mm -hmm. of our own, which resembles the French Revolution or Maoism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wrong. Because a lot of the response has been the science march. A lot mm -hmm. of the response has been, you know, trying to educate people better, uh, improving school education, getting people to be more critical towards sure. tax. And this is the sort of zone of comfort mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the upper middle class is, sure. oh, well, if only political discourse was more rational and if only we yeah. had a little bit more education, yeah. if only everybody had sort of gone to college like I did, yeah. uh, probably at my alma mater, then the whole world right. would be better, right? Right, right? And I guess I'm trying to think through whether what you've been talking about poses a challenge to that mm -hmm. or not. Is mm -hmm. that basically right, as long as you don't take it to a ridiculous extreme, which actually we don't seem to be about to? Yeah. Or does something flow out of what you've been saying which would make us self-critical about that basic view of seeing the world? I'm afraid that for the moment, in everything I've said or written so far, my arguments are aporetic. I have an analysis, but I don't have recommendations. Mm. But I think obviously the laying bare the depths of this aporia is, is an important part of contributing to our political culture as well, right? Uh, but what I mean by this is, I think you're absolutely right, the comfort zone of people who are self-identified as rational is too comfortable and a bad place to linger for long. And this is something that I think we're all familiar with by now, that reciting the facts mm -hmm. about, say, this is a topic that interests me a great deal, the science of evolution is not going to convert anyone. And so it's plain that there has to be something besides a more rigorous exposure mm. to scientific knowledge to win everyone over ideologically to the side of science. What is that additional effort beyond the facts? Well, certainly it has something to do with better early childhood education and um, better school systems. But what we seem to have at present in the United States is a problem of authority, where children from the beginning are being sent to school asked by their parents to go with a sort of reservatio mentalis, right? Mm -hmm. to, to go into the classroom and listen to their godless evolutionist science professor without having necessarily to absorb the lesson fully, just enough to get a passing grade. So that challenge, the fact that we can't fight irrationalism with facts, and I should say, I mean, by that both empirical facts as well as the ability to make logical inferences from the empirical mm. facts. 
the fact that that's not enough, that we can't do that, is I think a real problem. And obviously, the full answer for that reason has to do with the transformation of institutions and not just fighting back against falsehoods with truths. So I know I'm pushing you towards something that perhaps is not quite your zone of comfort, but what, what would that transformation of institutions look like? And, and to what extent is this a matter of enlisting emotion as a handmaiden of reason, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so I think one of the basic discoveries that people like David Hume have argued for a long time, sure. but that have also been, sure. I think in some interesting ways, repeated in more recent psychological research, is that reason doesn't stand on its own. Sure. And emotion guides it in certain kind of ways. And, yeah. and one obvious response to that is say, well, in every political argument we make, and even in certain kinds of communication of scientific arguments, yeah. we have to enlist emotion. Of sure. course, the problem is that scientific as well as unscientific claims can equally enlist emotion. Sure. And so the reason to want to focus on the rational and on the scientific plane is that that's the only plane in which true and false claims sure. actually have an uneven plane. Sure, sure, sure. Right. Yeah. When you are trying to be rational, you're managing to be rational. Yeah. And so far as that's possible, yeah. then true claims will win over untrue claims. Sure. If it appeals to emotion, it's not particularly clear yeah. why we should win. And sure. it, especially if it's a fight between the authority of religion and family tradition sure. and your parents versus, you know, science and what the teacher tells you. Sure. If those forces go to battle on the emotional battlefield, sure. it seems to me like actually reason is likely to lose sure. over the reasonable position you're trying to argue for by enlisting sure. emotion. Oh, that's so interesting. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. One further complication of this very correct analysis that you just gave, the, let's say, various alternative knowledge communities, mm -hmm. so to speak, or alt-knowledge, you might <laughs> say, have... It's a horrifying <laughs> phrase. Thank you for <laughs> right. that. I, I just talked about vocabulary, but I'm, I'm, I have a cold um, shiver running down my spine. <laughs> well, what I'm thinking of in particular here is these kind of simulacra of authority that we have, mm. for example, in the Creation Science Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky, I mm. think, founded by Ken Ham, where... This is an additional complication of your analysis because it is an alt museum. It looks like a museum, but it doesn't really have the authority to explain what the items mm. that are, that are being showcased, fossils and so on. But here you see an understanding of what religious commitment is that would have horrified someone like Kierkegaard, right? You have a willingness on Ken Ham's part to stake the worthiness of his religious commitment on something as trivial as the origins of this particular fossil behind hmm. the glass, right? And so there you have people who belong to what are in the end affective communities, hmm. communities of people who come together for emotional reasons, nonetheless daring to enter the playing field of facts and hmm. to stake everything on the establishment of facts where they are certainly, most certainly, at their weakest. 
they're playing. They're moving. Oh, they're moving into yeah. the big leagues without really being uh, qualified to do. But so. is that what they're doing, or they're just using that as an additional argument? I mean, it seems to me like this sort of, you know, one way of thinking about politics is that you have to play defense on your weak issues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if if you don't, you don't get standing to speak. It's not that you want to win those battles. Right. It's that you want to make sure that you don't ignore those so much that, sure. you know, nobody's going to listen to you on other topics. And sure. then you can try and go on the offense on the issues you really care about. So right. I think in a certain kind of way, that's a way of thinking about what European political parties perhaps have to mm. do on issues like immigration. I sure. think a lot of the time they are trying to not talk about some of the fears and some of the fear mongering from the far right. Sure. And to instead say, hey, let's talk about the economy and let's yeah. talk about what we're doing for workers. And I think the problem with that is that you lose permission to speak. Right. People right. are just like, well, look, if you're not taking seriously my biggest concern, right. I'm just not going to listen to anything you have to say. Right. right what you right. have to do is to have a coherent enough line, right. one that people are sort of comfortable enough with right. on this one issue. Right. So that then when you say, hey, do you know what? I'm actually going to fight to make sure that you have money in your pocket, whereas right. the other people won't. They're going to be willing to listen to you. And it seems to me like there's a similar strategy going on. That's here, so interesting. They, yeah. they, you know, at the, what is it called? Creation Science Fact Museum or something. Mm, right. they, they don't want to win you over with the facts, mm. but they need to play defense on that right. so that when you go into your biology classroom right. and the teacher says, well, but what about this fossil, which is so and so old? You can right. say, oh, no, but actually, no, it's 3,000 years old. But, but what makes you take the position is not the set of rational claims about the age of a fossil. Right. It is the emotion. But that one fact gives you permission to believe what you want to believe anyway. And right. that, I think, is a plausible way of thinking about the interaction of reason and emotion yeah. in any case. So oh, there's certain things you want mm, to believe yeah. and you still have to latch on to some reasonable explanation yeah. for it. It's oh, just yeah. that you're going to give that reasonable explanation a much easier pass yeah. than you would if you didn't want to believe. Oh, that's so interesting. And I think I agree with you. It's worth noting, just to continue on the topic of pseudoscience a moment longer, because I, I really do think it's a very very useful point of access to politics. Like if you think about, for example, why did Trump start tweeting in 2014 or 15 about vaccinations causing mm. autism? There's nothing obviously useful for his political ends right. about the anti-vax movement, except that it's a form of sowing distrust right. in general, right? And so pseudoscience is perhaps far more relevant than it seems at first glance. Yeah. So just to, to continue on with that a bit longer, I think it's very interesting that over the past two years, creationism has come to seem rather too tepid. And at the same time, there has been a spike of interest in so-called flat earth theory. Oh, um, interesting. And this is interesting because there's a significant difference between creationism and flat earth theory that I wanted to get to. There are at least a handful of sincere creation scientists, hmm. that is, people who are really promoting this view based on sincere commitment, based on good faith to the interpretation they give of evidence about the Earth's past. By contrast, if you've ever listened to a defender of flat earth theory, they will spend about five seconds on 
what the theory actually holds, how there's a great ice wall that bounds the disk of the Earth and the other planets are orbiting around us mm. uh, because it's not that there are no planets, it's just that the Earth is not one, whatever. They jump through that so quickly to get to the good stuff, which is that NASA faked the photographs of right, the right. and things like that. Um, because in the end, it's so obvious that that's all they really care about. Right. Is, right, um, right. is stoking uh, conspiracy theories. So the proportion of conspiracy theory varies from pseudoscience to pseudoscience. Oh, fascinating. And the fact that we have tremendous interest now in a pseudoscience that is almost purely conspiracy theory is certainly an index of the political culture as a right. whole. Um, well, I mean, I think there's a deeper lesson here, which is that people sometimes think that the internet sort of causes conspiracy theory. Mm. And that's blatantly false. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, one of the most influential texts of the 20th century was the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, sure. you know, forgery, mm -hmm. which was used to incite anti-Semitism. People mm -hmm. believed in, in huge numbers that mm -hmm. the moon landing was faked, mm -hmm. even in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But there's two things going on here, right? I mean, the first is that conspiracy theories thrive in an environment in which you don't trust the political system right. and social authorities. Right. And whether or not you trust the political system or social authorities, I think, depends in part on whether you have an experience of them apparently being responsive to yeah. needs and desires. Yeah. And so it's easier to hold conspiracy theories in check during yeah. what here in France is called the Tronc Glorieuse, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. or which, you know, the, the sort of post-war boom that we had in the United States as well. Right. Because in the end, you know, I mean, are people who are far removed from my lived experience who seem to have a lot of power, perhaps in various ways nefarious, you know, probably. Sure. But we can't be all that nefarious because after all, we're still making my life quite a bit better. Sure. Whereas now people are saying, hey, why should I trust this system? Sure. It doesn't seem to be working. Sure. It seems to be getting all of these things yeah. wrong. So perhaps what's actually going on is just people being completely... Sure. Yeah. And certainly, I, to return to the anti-vax movement for mm. a moment, I, I think it's really revealing this is a largely American phenomenon. There's an interesting kind of subspecies of it in France that we could discuss if we had more time, where they have a very peculiar and local fear of aluminum poisoning in vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And it's often been commented that this it's strange, you know, it's the same uh, vaccination from one country to another, but one country gets particularly preoccupied oh, with a single yeah. danger that's just totally off the radar of uh, in other countries. But in the United States... Don't talk about this. <laughs> this podcast may become the ground zero of introduce this into the bloodstream, so to speak. But an obvious feature of the anti-vax movement in the United States is the utter dysfunction of the healthcare system. Uh, and one can understand uh, why people who are largely excluded from regular health care, who are blocked, are then somewhat wary when the state tells them that there is one dimension of the healthcare system that you're not only not blocked from, but you're required to participate in. 
for the sake of group immunity. So obviously the dysfunction of the system has made people wary, has made people look mm -hmm. elsewhere. I discuss at some length some remarkable YouTube footage of Tea Party protesters circa 2009 when they're asked if they have insurance because they don't want Obamacare. They say, no, I don't have insurance. And the interviewer says, well, what do you intend to do in the future? And the answer is, well, I come from a very healthy family. Right, like right. literally denying your own mortality for the sake of, as we say now, owning the other side. Right? Right. And there are other people at the same Tea Party protest against Obamacare who are proposing, in fact, that in the absence of single payer health care, they have a perfectly good alternative, which is to turn to traditional Chinese remedies. Mm -hmm. And I find that moment fascinating because that is effectively the anti-Obamacare constituency going over into the alternative culture in, right. uh, in the true sense. So, so I, have, I have a few thoughts here. I mean, yeah. one is the importance of identity threat mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in driving irrational anti-scientific beliefs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that does have political implications, mm -hmm. particularly when I think of climate change. One of the things that really drives the opposition to belief in climate change in the United States, I think, mm -hmm. is the perception of many Americans that, you know, if I believe in climate change, then that means that people are going to tell me that I can't drive SUVs, mm -hmm. that I, you know, can't really have warm heating in, in the winter and mm -hmm. I shouldn't really be using my AC in the summer. And so, you know, it threatens uh, my way of life and it threatens mm -hmm. what, what, what I think of as constitutive of my identity. Mm -hmm. So the easiest way out of it, psychologically, mm -hmm. is a way to reduce that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Or even to explain why that, the world might require that, to say, mm -hmm. well, this is all a big conspiracy mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. order to stop America being America. Right, right. right, um, right. And I do think that actually has political implications. I tend to believe in general that we actually can and should try and make the world more affluent mm -hmm. while dealing with climate change, mm -hmm, if that's mm -hmm. possible. The price of alternative energy and renewable energy is now nearly as low as that of fossil fuels. Once it falls below, the mechanisms of capitalism can help us with regulation and all of these mm -hmm. other things to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And certainly when you look out into other countries, it's very clear that we still need massive economic growth because mm -hmm. there's lots of people who don't have reliable access to electricity, to sure. doctors, no reliable food supply. And the idea that somehow we should sacrifice their interests sure. is horrendous to me. But I think it does also help to deal with that identity threat. Sure. Because if you can tell people in middle America who are a little skeptical of climate change, but look, we can deal with this. It's going to sure. cost us a little bit of money. Sure, sure. But you know what? Our country is still going to yeah. be a lot more affluent 50 or 100 years from now than it is today. Sure. You're still going to be able to drive your SUVs. Yeah, it'll have electric energy rather than fossil fuels. But you know what? Yeah. You won't even notice. Right. That, I think, is a uh -huh. much an argument that's much more likely to win sure. than the sort of Naomi Klein style you know, in order to deal with climate change, you have to abolish capitalism. Sure. I disagree on a small point here, which mm -hmm. is that in Europe, there's less anti-vax stuff. I'm not mm -hmm. sure of that. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, there's a lot of anti-vax stuff in Europe. On I may just be less attuned to it. Yeah. Yeah. So you have huge outbreaks of measles, you know, in West Hollywood, actually. Right. And also in Prenzlauer Berg, which right, is right, the right. sort of yeah. left-wing fashionable right. part of Berlin. And right. there was recently a, a statistic of measles outbreaks right. in, in Europe, which have right. gone through the roof in the last yeah. five or 10 years. And here too, often have political enablers. Yeah. 
So you have the five star movement in Italy, yeah, right, right, uh, spreading this sort of stuff and so on. Um, that had slipped my mind. You're right, but it's true that anti-vax is one of these issues that truly infects both the left and the right, and it's the sort of thing that's like, perfect for disinformation spreading bots to focus right, on. Right. Right. Yeah, there's um, this big debate about the horseshoe theory, which I suppose yeah. I should have in the podcast sometime. Mm. I think the answer to it is that there's certain areas in which a horseshoe doesn't really work mm -hmm. and other areas in which it clearly works. I mean, right. from policy right. by and large is one right. where it does work, right. but something like this is also one. Right. Right. But I just wanted to, to retell a quick story from when I was asked to be on a call-in show on German public radio mm -hmm. with a panel of people mm -hmm. about the science march. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they spent 40 minutes saying, oh, aren't Americans irrational? <laughs> aren't Americans stupid? Can you believe that we all don't believe in climate change mm. and so on? It was incredibly smug. <laughs> and I was trying to argue against that a little bit. But, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I too am very sad that lots of people don't believe in climate change. Mm. But then, you know, I made some passing reference to homeopathy. And at that point, a caller called in. And, and from her name, it was sort of an aristocratic German name. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, her diction and so on. Mm -hmm. She was clearly an educated, affluent person. Mm -hmm. She said, you know, how dare you say that homeopathy doesn't work. It actually did a lot for me. Da, 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 right. And immediately, all of the other panelists said, oh, no, of course, we didn't want to, you know, offend yeah. you. And no, sure, of course. I mean, we don't really know. Said, mm. What do we you mean? Do. <laughs> We've been talking for 40 minutes yeah. about the evils <laughs> of unscientific irrationality. Yeah. And suddenly here's something that's utterly irrational. Yeah. Right? We claim of homeopathy is that you have some kind of remedy yeah. and you mix it with three liters of water and then you take a drop of it and you mix it three liters of water and you yeah. take a drop of that and you mix it three liters of water. And yeah. some of us going to cue. It yeah. is as absurd a claim as, I mean, certainly, sure at least as absurd as creationism sure, or, sure, sure, or yeah. the idea of climate change yeah, doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah. And those same people who pride themselves in being rational right. yeah. suddenly at least yeah. aren't willing to contradict it. I, I recall once having the flu in Germany and, mm. and going to a pharmacy where they gave me some kind of anthroposophic treatment from the right. Steinerians where on the, on the box it explained what it was going to do, not just for my physical body, but for my astral body. And I was furious because well, well, they, well, they pretended to be a pharmacy. But I no, think no, the crazy <laughs> thing is, it's not just that they pretend to be a pharmacy. To be a pharmacist <laughs> right. in Germany, yeah. you have to pass a test on the state-approved homeopathic <laughs> manual. Right, right. So actually, right. to become a pharmacist, you have to engage in this right. bullshit, which is incredible. Right. There's clearly something deep in German identity that it goes back to Paracelsus and all sorts of pre-modern canonical figures that gives some people plausible reason to think mm. that there is, let's say, an indigenous medical pharmaceutical tradition parallel to the modern one, just as there is, say, in China or India. I wanted to really quickly get back to, to climate change. Get back to uh, it, man. I want to get back to something else. Okay. And I think hopefully we'll have closed all of the different boxes we've opened. <laughs> oh, into. the time goes by so fast. <laughs> now, this might sound really heretical, but I think it's time also that we acknowledge that there is a certain tendency to millenarian irrationalism on the part of climate change educators. I have heard the most astounding things from people who are trying to change the world for the good. 
trying to promote what they think, and I think, are perfectly reasonable changes to bring about lower emissions in the developed world and so on, but who say the most remarkable things. For example, I heard recently that there will be no nature left a generation from now. Hmm. Uh, the worst case scenario, the worst total nuclear war, plus the, you know, turning everything in all the factories in the world up to 11, there will still be organic life on Earth. And so there is a tendency to distort and exaggerate in the most implausible apocalyptic ways what is in fact a rather anthropocentric and limited fear that we have that our coastal cities will be uninhabitable and so on. And this, I think, not unreasonably sets off red lights in yeah, the part yeah. of the skeptics. And so this is a big problem. A big problem is being really being educated and clear on both sides of this debate. I agree with that. And to, I think, make your claim a little more precise and perhaps you disagree with that. I think to me, that is 99.9% .9 of the time, mm -hmm. not a problem with the actual science. Mm -hmm. It's a problem sure. with science journalism and with environment advocacy. Sure. So I remember one study, for example, perhaps a year or two ago, which showed that, you know, on a reasonably, you know, they had a range of scenarios and in one of the more pessimistic scenarios, some significant, but by comparison to the total mass of New York City, relatively small mm. parts of New York might be underwater right. in 50 or 60 years. Right, right, so right. parts of Red Hook, for example, yeah. and so on, which obviously would be a catastrophe of a significant scale. It's obviously something worth worrying about. It's obviously one of the reasons why we need to go and fight climate change. Sure. But when you then looked at the newspaper headlines, yeah. they said, New York City to be underwater 50 yeah. years from now. Yeah. And what you picture, obviously, is sort of, you know, World Trade Center, yeah. you know, with water up to the 17th floor. And yeah, there's just yeah, like yeah. nothing like that, yeah, that, the, that yeah. the very careful scientific study was saying, but it gets, gets translated that yeah. way. And it is often the partisans of reason and the partisans of science, the partisans of justice even, yeah. making those claims, yeah. but actually ending up misleading yeah. quite, quite significantly. I, I think you're absolutely right that what the problem here is in what in French, the lovely term, we call vulgarisation, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the vulgarized versions of the science that, uh, that the problems start arising. But what this shows to me, the reason why I think this is a really interesting lesson is it's almost as though there's no way to insert climate change into public consciousness, except by getting people devoted to fighting against it in a rather millenarian mm. and somewhat pseudo-religious way. Right? So, that, so that's um, fascinating, because when you ask people about pressing political problems, mm. I seem to remember one poll where about four or five percent of US population said the environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when you ask people, well, what in the environment? Mm -hmm. Climate change came third after pollution yeah. and some other things. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the only way to mobilize mm -hmm. that depressingly small faction mm -hmm. of US population, who is really passionate about that, right. is to actually cast it in the frames of a millenarian narrative, right. which itself is, is in some ways deeply irrational. That's but right. I think exactly. one thing that's absolutely true in climate change conversation and advocacy is that it's often this sort of idea that there was a perfect status quo ante, there was a mm. moment of yeah perfect, you know, environmental justice, or, right. you know, where, where the environment existed and it was untouched and it was lovely and humans lived in harmony with it in various right. ways. 
And then, you know, the Industrial Revolution or wherever that narrative starts, that yeah. varies a little bit from author to author and person to person, sort of the human original sin yeah, right, against right, the environment right. started. Right. And right. what we need to do in order to cleanse ourselves of that sin is right. in a certain kind of way a form of self-flagellation. Right, right, right. right. It is to go back to the lifestyle from before that. Right to give up on all of the nice worldly goods because all of those are in some ways morally tainted. And yeah. so actually the extent to which um, people who generally, I think, uh, are fighting for something important yeah. and are fighting for something, parts of which there's a lot of evidence in, in science, obviously climate change mm -hmm. and its potential disastrous effects, are actually simultaneously in the grips of what's, you know, an astounding parallel to a religious narrative. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to just go back to one more point about the resistance that's confronted by climate change scientists and vulgarizers from people who are attached to their particular form of life. I do think that sometimes we really underestimate the importance for communities of things like air conditioning. I think right. you cannot underestimate the importance of cooling technologies for United States history. It was from the beginning part of the expansion westward, part of the cleansing and conquering of the frontier mm -hmm. was figuring out how to cool the place, right? And this is something that lives on in American history and that sharply distinguishes the American form of life from life on the continent. As I suffer through hotter <laughs> and hotter summers in Paris, where people, they seem to be ready to use air conditioning, but they don't use air conditioning like we Americans use air conditioning. And I, oh, I certainly believe that one of the implications of climate change is just that certain European cities need to get on the AC. And I know it's going to do it, make it worse, but sorry. We, okay, but, but before we uh, completely lose people politically here, I want to tie up one more loose end. And then I think we need to draw this wonderful conversation to a close. And it's about the internet. So we're mm. talking about conspiracy theories and the sort of hypothesis that I was making up on the fly was that to some extent they've always existed. Yeah. But they are driven by two factors. One factor is how much people trust the political system. Yeah. Um, but I do wonder whether another factor is the ease of communication yeah. and the ease with which people who spread conspiracy theories can gain a platform in society. And yeah. I know that you think quite carefully about the broader political and cultural effects yeah. that social media and media has had. So I just yeah. want to want to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I think certainly you're right to point out that there were vicious and destructive conspiracy theories long before the internet. But I think the great disappointment is over the past 10 or 15 years is that the internet didn't solve the problem. Oh, right. We thought it would solve the problem because, uh, you know, if you had asked me in 1902, Five, why do people believe the protocols of the elders of Zion? I would have said, well, it has something to do with uh, their limited access to information, right? Mm -hmm. News travels slowly and you get one little propagandistic brochure in your hands. That's what you're going to believe. One would have thought that that problem would have been significantly diminished mm -hmm. now that we have instantaneous access to all the information in the world. But 
it has not been diminished. It's got worse. And for those of us who use the internet in a way that I think helps us to learn the facts um, that use it, you know, those of us who who use it to read uh, scholarly articles and books on Google Books and so on are continuously stunned when we see people getting deeper and deeper into false beliefs of various sorts as a result of their connection to the internet. And this has everything to do with algorithms. There was a wonderful article just this morning in the New York Times about YouTube algorithms leading people deeper and deeper into far-right tirades Mm. in Germany when they've started from YouTube videos that are vloggers or whatever they call them now, expounding fairly moderate views. So if you don't have the experience and and the knowledge at the outset, to approach these things with caution. And then one can perfectly understand how people get sucked in. So the internet in a way has done two things, Mm -hmm. which is really fascinating. So one is that it has revealed something about us, Mm -hmm. that we falsely believe that more information is going to lead to more rational thought. And that apparently is not the case. Right, right, right. And then the second slightly separate thing is that so many major platforms on the internet are driven by algorithms which actually drive us towards being exposed to more rather than less radical information. I mean, it's complicated because there are wonderful counterexamples. I think the creation and the unleashing of the internet is on balance worth it for Wikipedia alone. Mm. I think Wikipedia is the realization of the goals of the century of enlightenment. This is what Diderot and d'Alembert were trying to do, but in infinitely better. And I'm always astounded when I look up an article on quasars or something like that, how much information I have access to. I think it's beautiful and I think it is not susceptible to the same weaknesses Mm. that the social media are. Though in some sense, Wikipedia is social media because it's open to editing, it's crowdsourced. And the difference is, again, I think that it's not driven by hidden algorithms that, again, have the effect of slotting us into commitments that are linked somehow by artificial intelligence to the previous view that we have just been inquiring about. I mean, isn't the difference between those two things just that the algorithm caters more to human nature than Mm. Wikipedia, right? Because what the algorithm tries to do is it it does whatever maximizes engagement. That's Mm -hmm. what it's designed to do. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it turns out that if you see one moderate video, say, okay, well, that's reasonable. And then you go and get along with your life. Mm -hmm, Whereas mm -hmm. if it then autoplays a more extreme video, Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. that's interesting. And slowly you become a mass in that world and it's quite intense and you sort of spend more time with it, right? Right, Of course, one interesting thing is that people... Unlike us, perhaps, uh, you know, you seem to spend a lot of your time looking up quasars on, on Wikipedia. But most people don't spend their free time on Wikipedia. Right. They go to it when they are in need of a very particular piece of information. Right. Whereas they do spend their free time on YouTube, watching right. video after video. Right. Right. And right. So, I mean, in a weird way, you might say these algorithms, which, yes, are artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but they actually reveal something deeper about human nature with Wikipedia. So perhaps that's too, too... Well, look, I'm not so sure. I think that it could be done a lot better. And one 
preliminary step has to be that the people who run these companies acknowledge that they have a real responsibility、mm. to do this better, and that's slowly happening, but not nearly as much as we need. Now, I think one of the big problems is that there's a basic confusion in the algorithms between, say, having a curiosity that drives you to、uh, to try to understand a certain position better and being an adherent of that position. Right?、Mm. I mean, I frequently look up far right stuff on the internet because I want to know what they're saying, and frequently the algorithms confuse me、right. with with a supporter of far right politics. And again, I'm kind of mature enough to know how to navigate、mm. that. But if I were 15 years old and I were just you know, trying to find my initial way in the world, it would be incredibly toxic for me. Yeah. So as long as they're unable to make a basic distinction between, let's call it. Research slash curiosity on the one hand, and support on the other. It's going to be an engine of radicalization. Well, the other thing I think is that you need to be able to express some kind of meta preference, even if you do have some sympathy. I mean, it works on the other end as well, right?、Mm-hmm. So you start with moderate left wing content, and it pulls you towards the extremes.、Mm-hmm. You start with、uh, reading up about vegetarianism, and it pulls you towards videos saying you should be a vegan, right? Right, right. right. But you know, a lot of the time, there's a distinction. Between what Harry Frankfurt, the Princeton philosopher, has called first-order volitions and second-order、mm. volitions, right? Like, I want to drink this coke, but I also want to keep to my diet,、mm-hmm. and so I have this sort of overriding desire to not drink a coke. And、right. and there should be some way in which you can input some of your second-order volitions. That's very interesting.、Yeah. Uh, to something like、yeah. YouTube, to say, hey,、yeah. I don't want to be pulled towards right, the extremes.、Right. Help、right. me out here,、yeah. Justin. Thank you so much. This was a hugely interesting and illuminating job for all things rational and irrational. And 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 one of the frustrating things about you and your work is that you work on so many different things and have interesting things to say about so many different topics. But I feel like there's 17 of those that I would have loved to talk about and we didn't have a chance. But that just means that we'll have to have you back was, on the podcast. It was a delight. I'm sorry it's already over. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Take out an ad on a podcast and force hosts the nation over to commit to the good fight or advertise on this podcast. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight@newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song "Chess Pieces." To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.